Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am over the top thrilled to have Paul Perry and Raymond Moody on the show. Raymond Moody, MD, PhD, is the leading authority of near-death experiences and the author of several books, including the seminal Life After Life. The founder of the Life After Life Institute, Moody has lectured on the topic throughout the world and is a counselor in private practice. He received his medical degree from the College of Georgia and his PhD from the University of Virginia. He's appeared on many programs today, Turning Point, all kinds of different things. There's so much more to say, but you can read about that in the show notes. Paul Perry has co-written several New York Times bestsellers, including The Light Beyond and The Evidence of the Afterlife. He's also a documentary filmmaker, and for his film and book about Salvador Dali, he has been knighted in Portugal. He's a graduate of Arizona State University and Antioch University. Welcome to the program, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Those bios are so short. Who put those together? I mean, your bios are so long and you've done so much work. It's like we should be saying a lot more. But we are here today to talk about your new book um, that I'm so excited about, Proof of the Afterlife. And the seven things, there you go, seven reasons to believe there is an afterlife. I'm super excited about this book because I've read all of your books. And um, this is just takes it even deeper and more, more convincing, I will say. And so, Raymond, before we put on the um, record button, you did say you were getting ready to say something. And... This is a quote from the book. Mm -hmm. Why life after life wasn't enough proof. proof. The problem was subjectivity. Your question, how can I prove an afterlife? After writing your book, Life After Life, you refuse to declare them proof of consciousness after death. Five decades later, what is your position now and why has it changed? Okay, number one, I was a philosophy professor who loves the history of philosophy and logic in particular. And I am been a professor of logic. I understand the complexities of the notion of proof, okay, especially in a question like life after death. It's no easy task, okay, but over the years, of these 50 plus years I've taught with people who have near-death experiences, more or less constantly, people want to hear from me, Dr. Moody, is there any proof? Okay, and I, and and often it's because of some life issue like aging or, or just curiosity developing or the loss of a loved one or facing a term, terminal illness. So there's some practical reason. And so what is what is it that they are asking for? I quickly realized that they're not asking for me to give them a lecture on Greek philosophy and the difficulties and the <laughs> notion of proof. They want, what they really want is, and this is the way I frame it. People are asking me, is it a rational thing to anticipate, you know, fairly confidently that, yeah, there is an afterlife. And I say that based on two things. Number one, I give up. You want to think of all the objections when you're trying to find something. So it's ridiculous to try to find all the reasons to in favor of it. What you want to do is to try to knock it down because when you stands this left over is, you know, we can say, oh, that's close to the truth. 
But I and I never fell for that thing. Oh, this is oxygen deprivation to the brain. It's for philosophical reasons on the one on the one hand, but on the other hand, one of my own medical school professors told me my first year in medical school of having this identical experience we call the near death experience of leaving the body and seeing the view of from above and seeing a passageway open, seeing apparitions of the deceased come forth. Well, my 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 medical school professor saw that experience, but she wasn't ill or injured. She was resuscitating her own mother. Mm-hmm. And as she said, she got out of her body and there was her mother at spirit form, the whole thing. And, and, you know, I, and then over the years, just more and more, more and more of these accumulated. So where I got to is I give up. Okay, I don't, it doesn't follow from the fact that it's not oxygen deprivation to the brain. I know it's not that, but it doesn't follow from that, from that fact that it therefore is life after death. So I was in a puzzle and where I finally came to it, Marla, is I, when you give up, look, I have a lot of medical friends, some probably, you probably know. Uh, Dr. Eben Alexander is a professor of neurosurgery at Harvard. Um, Dr. Uh, Anthony Chikoria was a mm-hmm. professor of uh, um, orthopedic surgery at NYU and PhD in physiology in addition to his MD. And, 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 and Dr. Uh, Jeff O'Driscoll it, it, and his experience with Jeff Olson, who had a near-death experience, where at the same time that um, Jeff O'Driscoll, the doctor there in the room where Jeff was being hovering between life and death, but Jeff O'Driscoll talked with the deceased wife of Jeff Olson, who had been killed in the accident. And, you know, and all of these people tell me these are dear friends, but also whose medical judgment I would trust completely. I am an addict in exercise. I mean, there's no virtue to it. It's like I got to get out every day. It's just like a force. I mean, I got to do it or else I, you know, get even crazy. Right. But but I asked myself, if heaven forbid I should hurt my foot, would I go to doctor? Um, you know, Anthony Chikoria, yes, or all these other medical specialties. Now, these I, these people unanimously tell me that their near-death experiences were not just real, but more real than this ordinary mm-hmm. reality. And where I am on it, Marla, is I give up. I, I can't really, you want to think your way out of these things. I mean, I do, it's just it's because that's the that's the real deal of trying to find out something. Yeah. But I give up. I can't think my way out of this. Well, and I, as counterintuitive I, as it still is to me, I give up. I gather that yeah, there's a yes. And people look towards you, of course, both of you, because of your well, your academic background, but such deep, deep research. And I encourage my listeners, I have had the honor to interview um, Dr. Alexander and Dr. Sicoria and and Jeff O'Driscoll to go back and listen to some of those interviews because their their, um, experience are just so profound. So in your book, you talk about, and I know this is why you wrote it, because you've written, what, seven books or something? How many books have you guys written together? We've written, this is our sixth book. Your sixth book. I've worked with Raymond for 33 years now. And I know I don't look it, but we've been around together for 33 years. (laughs) And we've always, you know, what we've always worked with is what everybody in in this field works with is near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And finally, what we decided to do was a a book that, that looks at things through a different lens. And that lens is a shared death experience. So, you know, simply, I mean, simply stated, a shared death experience is when a living person who is well experiences the death experience of a person who is dying. Yes. And, and there's a number of different ways they can experience it. And these are the ways we chose here in, in seven reasons to believe in the afterlife. 
Right. Is we more or less came up with with seven ways that they can that they can experience seven conditions under which they would experience someone's death uh, experience. I'm sure there's a lot more ways, but these are the ones we chose for this book because they're the uh, the most direct. I think. Right. And, and most accessible. Yes. And we're going to dive into that. But before we do, um, Paul, I know when your professor or someone asked you to write a book with Raymond and you said, I don't even know who Raymond Moody is. So first of all, yeah, can you briefly tell that story? And second of all, you had never heard of a near-death experience. So how has your life changed? What did you believe before and how has your life changed? Well, in the late 80s, I was uh, executive editor of a magazine in New York called American Health Magazine. And uh, it was a, just a large uh, consumer-oriented health magazine. And one day, uh, our, we have the same agent, Nat Sobel, and I had never met Raymond, never heard of him. And and Nat said, would you like to work, write, work on a book with Raymond? Uh, it was this third book, I believe, after uh, Life After Life. And... And I said, I don't know who Raymond Moody is. <laughs> and and he said, well, he's the guy who uh, named and defined the near-death experience. And I said, I don't even, I don't know what that is. And right away, Nat comes back and says, don't you watch Oprah? <laughs> and and uh, so we got together. He, he insisted that I needed the education, which he was certainly right. And we got together in Georgia to work on uh, The Light Beyond, which is about research done since Life After Life was written, the research that was largely inspired by that book. And we just got along really well. I wrote that book, uh, but then in the middle of it, I just felt like there was a vacuum. There was something missing. And what was missing for me was uh, uh, something about children and near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And Raymond says, well, there's not really much research being done. There's one guy researching it. He's a pediatrician in Seattle named Melvin Morse. Why don't you go talk to him? So I did. I went and I, I spoke to Melvin and we uh, we wrote a book called Closer to the Light, yeah. which is about children and NDEs. And to show you how things have changed, I wrote the proposal for that book and we sent it out to, uh, I believe, 21 publishers. 19 rejected it and uh reason they rejected it i got all these letters from their rejection letters they said that people don't care that much about their children uh our children children don't have memories or children don't tell the truth about things and uh uh and one one guy rejected me because i had a typo on page two and uh and so when i I've, yeah, but you know, when they have to call in the FBI for what looks like a bomb threat, Paul, that was just, <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, you know, yeah, I, I put it together with clips. I just made that paper. up. <laughs> so anyway, uh, where was I? Uh, oh, yeah. So I'm on the phone with the, the woman who bought it for, at Random House, Diane Reverend, and I'm reading my rejection letters, and she says, uh, you know, if you do this right, if you write this right, it's going to be a huge bestseller. And it was. And it just kind of between Raymond and that book by Melvin, uh, with Melvin, it just launched my career. Right. And what and I always do, what I always do when I decide to, to get involved with the book is I look to make sure that it fills a vacuum, that it fills a hole that's that's need that needs to be filled. And that's essentially how we got to this book. And Paul, how has it changed you? I mean, your beliefs before when you didn't even know about near-death experiences and and to now. Well, you know, it was a vacuum in my head too, you know, not just yes. in the book. But, uh, and when I started to read about what a near-death experience was, it just sounded like science fiction to me to begin mm -hmm. with. And then I started to mention it to other people and they they had heard other people who had had these experiences and uh, they may not have known what a near-death experience was, but they knew that something like this had happened to their grandparents or their, or themselves or their, someone in their family. And uh, so I started to gain uh, traction on the idea that 
that there was a near-death experience and on, on what it was. Finally, one day, I did this thing I called the Denny's Experiment. And I, I had gone to a movie with some friends, and we were up late, and we went stopped at a Denny's. And uh, we were talking about a lot of things. And one was, what, what am I doing? What am I writing about now? So I told them about the near-death experience, and there were like, I think, four or five of us, and two or three of them said, no, this is nothing, this is, you know, uh, BS. And so, bravely, I stood up in the Denny's, and there were probably 20 people in there, and I, I told them what I was doing, described a near-death experience, and, and asked if any of them had heard that, heard of one, and I was amazed at the response. It was about easily half of the people. Uh, started, they either had had one or they had had uh, a relative who had, you know, one of the guys, you know, looks at his wife and says, yeah, do you remember Uncle Henry? And he starts telling this story about Uncle Henry. And since then, I've done that a few times. And uh, it's not surprising to people at all. Uh, they, everyone now, everyone now knows this, thanks to Raymond. Mm -hmm. That's what a near-death experience is. And then talking about the shared death experiences, which we're going to do, don't you think even more people have experienced that? I mean, are people just coming out of the... That's my guess. That's I what would Raymond guess. says, yeah. Yeah, that it would seem that, you know, the it's it's more likely that a person who was near death would go on to die, right? Than right. Back. Whereas it's probably, my guess is, but it's just a guess, mm -hmm. is probably there are more people around to to sort of bring a near-death experience back or a shared death experience, depending on the incidents. But just from my own talking to people, I think this is just really common. Yeah. That, you know, there are people there at the bedside who are not themselves ill or injured. This isn't oxygen deprivation to the brain. But nonetheless, as they're all gathered around grandma as she died, no, one of the by one or more of the bystanders said, "As Grandma died, I left my body and floated up toward this light with her. Then, at a certain point, I came back down." Or people say that I saw Aunt Jenny come into the room just as plain as you know, and or the apparition of the dying person's loved ones coming in, or the light that fills the room or and this is the hardest one for me Marla and of everything I've studied is the one I just is most shocking to me is that it that it happens that a bystander at the death of somebody else who is dying will empathically co-live the dying life review of the person who's passing away. And I had a number of them over the years. And at first I thought, well, this has got to be somebody who's fairly intimate with the person who's passing away, right? I mean, that's the only way it would halfway make sense. But then some years ago, Cheryl and I got a communication from an ER doctor who was called down to the ER to talk to a to try to resuscitate a patient he had never laid eyes on. But this doctor said that as the guy was dying, this life review, he just sort of empathically picked up on this guy's dying life review. And so what I'm getting at here is that, you know, this is, it's, you can see how people want to retreat to that oxygen deprivation to the brain thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not as scary <laughs> as this other stuff. Right, right. To me, there's a certain amount of scariness in the fact that my dear friend, Anthony Chicoria, had never had an interest in the piano, but was struck by lightning, had a cardiac arrest, said, I experienced something more real and real. Then he came back, he started, oh my God, I've never been interested in the piano. But all of a sudden he's dreaming about being a concert pianist and playing the same music on stage. So he learns how to transcribe music and takes piano lessons. And now in addition to being an eminent, you know, an orthopedic surgeon, he's a concert pianist. That makes no sense. Yeah. In the common sense reality that we 
hold on to. But it, it people are just not going to, you know, it can't, it's too threatening to, I think, to the common sense reality to right. try to process these things. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about some of the reasons you just spoke of one, the, the life review. And um, so I'd like to just, you know, briefly, briefly talk about it and then you can go back and forth if you'd like, however you guys want to do this and um, give an example or give a story of, of when you've seen this. So first is the, um, the out of body experience. And this is what you say people experience in your book. This is where wisdom, information, and insights outside of their earthly existence come into play. They become aware of a supreme being in a way that they probably wouldn't have without the OBE. To paraphrase Long, which is a researcher in near-death experiences, they understand such concepts of connection, unity, and oneness that they weren't aware of before their OBE. All of this has led Long to believe that near-death experiences are co-created, one part the earthly NDE and the other part divine wisdom, what many people call, I'm sorry, divine wisdom, overwhelming love and intelligence, what many people call the presence of God. So I guess that kind of does define it. Sure. Um, can you can you give us an example? of? And also, before I ask that, when people share these stories with you, I know the near-death experience, many say, you know, it was more real than real. Is that what these people experiencing these shed, shared death experiences say also? Raymond? Yes. Uh, well, yes, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, people try to talk it as, they say it's like, you know, language fails, right? Yes, because yes. we don't have a language for talking about a transition of consciousness to, from one realm to right. another like people come back with the near-death experiences it's inevitable you know no matter how articulate no matter how many languages how many degrees i can't describe it to you. right and that seems the universal you know mm -hmm. feature of it and 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 similarly in the shared people become aware that they are in contact somehow touching on some other plane of existence mm. is how people experience it. And also by just by virtue of, of naming it and and identifying the elements of it, which we've done in this book, yes. naming the shared death experience and identifying the elements, uh, people uh, <clears throat> people come out of the closet, if you will, about these because now they realize, hey, medical science is, has has acknowledged it. So it's okay to talk about it. So I think we're going to get a flood of shared death experiences. Yeah. Well, William Peters also, all of his work is is amazing. And to learn about him, I also did an interview on him. So can you tell us um, <clears throat> an example of an out-of-body experience? In Fort Dix, New Jersey, I was asked up there by the chaplaincy department to lecture on near-death experiences. And had just the most wonderful, you know, just as I've lectured on a military basis before. It's just, you know, such great folks. Okay. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> among the people who came up was this young man, as I recall, was in his early 30s. He was a sergeant. And he told me that recently he had been quite ill in the hospital and was, we believed dead, but had a cardiac arrest and returned. But he said, and what happened was that when he had gone to the hospital to be, you know, from his medical emergency, that unbeknownst to him, his sister was being admitted to the same hospital concurrently. And she had, pro you know, a chronic problem with diabetes. But so this young sergeant, just like with, you know, an utter astonishment in his eyes and you can imagine how something like this happens to you he said that while he was out of his body he met into his he met his sister <clears throat> who he didn't know was there and he learned about his situation and realized she was passing away so said his goodbyes and 
then came back to his body and then, you know, he left. But with the while out of his body, you know, saying goodbye to his sister who was concurrently dying in the same hospital, unbeknownst to him. And, you know, this sounds so highly unusual, but, you know, people have extraordinary experiences around the time of the death of a loved one. It's, um, it's, people have a hard time speaking about them, but the most extraordinary things, like, I don't know how many people I've heard from telling me over the years that as their loved one died, or at the end of days or hours before, or just minutes before, that a loved one who never had any interest whatsoever in music or poetry will suddenly accountably or unaccountably start <clears throat> reciting poetry or sometimes making up poetry on the spot or sometimes singing their way out. Now, I have two people in my one hour to garbage with close association and one network. One, a friend I had for 20 years, who, as she was dying, sang her way out, according mm. to mutual friends who told me, okay. And then I have a friend, Jimmy, whose brother, and I knew Jimmy very well, but I did, I never met Jimmy's brother, but Jimmy was just telling me that as his brother was dying, his brother just started burst into song. And so what I infer from that is there's got to be, you know, pretty often this, you know, more often than you would expect. I think right. this goes on. So those would be cases of, ter- you would put that under the category terminal lucidity. Is that? Right, that would be terminal I would. Yeah. I would. And it's part of the whole history of Western thought. We don't know it. You know, the, the Christian concept of the afterlife, theology of the afterlife was was put together in the early Christian years and from Plato's Phaedo is where it comes from. That sounds like some kind of misnomer or something, but just look it up. I mean, I first read it in Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy in 1964. But, you know, it, but then when I started talking to my philosophy students, I had to, was he an expert on, I don't know, see, but I looked, I asked people in, religious studies professors in here and in the U and the abroad. Is that true? And they say, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. So, so, and, and what in that foundational document it has is Plato and it's Socrates is early in the morning. It's the day of his execution and his friends asking, what is this we hear about? You've been writing songs in prison. Because they are implying he must be, you know, going nuts. But he says, no, no. As a matter of fact, he said, I've been receiving dreams and visions that tell me to compose songs. And wow. he's been doing it. And he's and he's, he goes on to say, he says, you know, there's an old Greek story that, that the Greeks believed that just before song, swans died, they sang the most beautiful song of all. Because... Socrates said they realize that they are dying and they're going to be in the company of the gods. Right. So and and so and so I call that phenomenon the swan song phenomenon. But it's a <laughs> lot more common than people would think. Well, it's interesting when you talk about um, Dr. Tony Sicoria or Anthony and then so, uh, so many of the greats in the musical world saying that the music just flows from God, you know, as they get into the flow, they're not dying or anything, but just to know that the SDE of what you're speaking of actually is so similar, if not the same as what a remarkable about. person is Eric Pagani, P-I-G-A-N-I. I think he used to be the on PBS as one of the music experts or something. But Eric is, first of all, just the most lovely, innocent, loving, sweet person. I, I mean, incredibly so. And and also he is a, a an accomplished psychologist in Paris. And is in the psychology, which is their psychology magazine. There is an editor. And also, true to his, his personality, he is the psychological expert or consultant for 
Disneyland Paris, because <laughs> he's a Disney fan too. But all right, this just wonderful guy. In addition to his his you know his his psychology and his writing, he's a, he's most well known as a concert pianist. And so in 1988, I was over there and I was talking to uh, uh, Eric about my my latest work and all. And and but anyway, he he um he was telling me that sometime back he had been playing in a concert and he said suddenly his he just lifted out of his body into this light and he lost himself in the light mm -hmm. and he said 17 minutes he came back and he had played three pieces <laughs> and found himself sitting at a piano and so you know eric is just completely wonderful in any you would not believe this guy and so he's just so my oh well yes he's, i said eric did they the people like the performance you know well oh yes they seem to but fortunately his sister was there who had been at the performance and she said people were you know jumping down yelling screaming all right so so <laughs> so eric said well if this has happened to me it's happened to other musicians right. so around among his operatic star friends mainly right. about this and he said you know obviously especially in singing death scenes where they lift up and, they, and i guess i'm not good at rock and roll but in spain some years ago i met sat next to this famous rock and roll guy they had the whole thing with the barriers up and all the screaming fans trying to call <laughs> the play in but he was just really we were just sitting there and and he told me about this very thing about getting out of his body during this this performance so i take you know it must be common but people come in to have um you know out-of-body experiences for other reasons too and another fairly common reason as we know is with get out of their body during a near-death experience right right and you know when you talk about out-of-body experiences you're largely speaking about a soul a soul that leaves the the corporeal body and and roams right you know, it's difficult to define the soul. And and I one of the people we quote in the book is Jeff Long, a medical doctor who has a, a near-death experience research foundation. Someone asked him to define the soul and he worked on it. He actually worked on it for quite a while. And if, if I can, I'm going to read a paraphrase of what Absolutely. he said. He says, uh, these are the elements, he's defined the elements of the soul. And he says, the soul does not need the body to survive. <laughs> The soul knows that it comes from a specific body, so it can return to the body that it leaves. Uh, it contains the five senses. It is free to move and does not seem to be tethered to the body. And finally, it is the vehicle into another dimension. And I th and he he wrote it that way so it would be politically correct, so it wouldn't step on anyone's religion or uh other forms of belief wow. so i thought that was really a really a good description because when you look it up in the dictionary dictionaries don't really do it justice what a uh, beautiful description of that yeah, wonderful yeah. job good job dr long <laughs> <laughs> wow thanks for sharing that so let's talk a little bit what some people say is the most convincing um proof of the afterlife, which are precognitive experiences. Do you guys agree with that, that that's one of the more convincing? No, uh, I think it's one of the more common. One of the more common? Yeah. Okay. Pretty convincing yeah. too, I mean. Yeah. So why is this that they're very convincing? And as if I need to even ask that question. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah. And can you tell us the story of um, either about Betsy and her husband, Bob, um, about a precognitive, does that ring a bell? Well, tell, us, tell us a story about a precognitive experience that you'd like yeah. to share. Well, but technically a precognitive experience is mm -hmm. when a person unexpectedly sees the death of another person or has foreknowledge of the paranormal kind. So it's not always just related mm -hmm. to the death of someone else. And in that regard, there's the, the story of Olga Gerhardt, 
who uh, is from San Diego, she had to have a uh, heart transplant. And she has a large Hispanic family. And they all showed up in the waiting room at the hospital while she went in to get her heart transplant, except her son-in-law, who couldn't stand hospitals and, and, and couldn't stay there. So he went home and he went to bed. And she had trouble. They, she got the heart transplant and her heart kept stopping. And so she kept people wait, you know, waiting for hours in the waiting room. The doctors would come out and say she's in, in bad shape and then she'd get better and then it would stop and then it would go. And in one of these periods, it was about three in the morning, uh, her son-in-law woke up and she was standing at the foot of the bed. And he said, it was, he said, I thought you were getting a heart transplant. He, he thought that they had actually let her go, that things didn't work out and they didn't right. start the surgery. And she said, no, I'm, uh, tell everybody I'm fine. Uh, that I think they're going to get the heart started. Tell everybody I'm fine. So he immediately went to the hospital and he told everybody what had happened to him and he conveyed the message. When, when she came out, because she was ultimately okay, when she came out of uh, uh, surgery, one of the first things she said was, I, I went to see you when my, when my heart wouldn't work and I told you to tell everyone it was, that I was going to be okay. Wow. And we interviewed her. We interviewed her stepson and then uh, our son-in-law and then several members of the family separately and together. And they all had the same story. Right. So I think that's a fairly convincing precognitive experience. Are these stories, emo- do they get emotional for you guys after a while? Because I remember interviewing um, Dr. Bruce Grayson mm-hmm. and he got very teary-eyed, which he, it's beautiful. He tends to do. And he just said, you know, you listen to these over and over and it's just, there's so, maybe you don't get emotional, but the emotionalness, <laughs> if that's a word, yeah. that well, comes yeah. from them. It's <clears throat> just so deep. And so, so yeah. yeah. Oh, is a, is a, good word and and also yeah. the narrative aspect of it is you know human beings are set up to just be involved with narratives you know we love stories our life is a story if you think about it whenever anything new happens to you you integrate it into your life story so it's just irresistible on on that level and then the wonderful people you meet and the astonishing patterns you hear and the unbelievable, incredible things that are just routinely told to you by people who are completely ordinary in every respect, except they had a cardiac arrest. I mean, it's it's beyond astonishing. But it's where I've come to it is like I, uh, I think with that with many people in the seventies comes the age of narrative. Where you think of the whole, you think of this narrative aspect of people. So it's a continuing life story, and it's in a, it's a, and it seems to be in a life or death rush now with world events. To my appearance, I mean, I don't, you know, I think some pretty terrible things are going on, and 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 you know that what's happening is that. People are now coming into midlife in which there is a natural development thing that haven't even Plato observed this 20 something hundred years ago, that in midlife, people who've spent their whole life in their business and routine just focused on it and done very well, that in midlife, at a certain point, they they say they begin to think back on all those stories they heard when he was a kid. They were a kid about the afterlife and they developed this sense of urgency. It's just natural. And there's a lot of people like that now. There's also people you think about in excess of a million Americans died due to the COVID. Now that translates to a lot of people who are grieving. So Paul and I think in putting all these things together and also with something, Marla, that sounds so completely corny, but, you know, this thing about 
the happiest life is a life of service to others. When you're a kid, you hear that as an idea, right? Then you get into midlife, it becomes an aspiration. But I guarantee you that at age 79, it becomes a fact of experience because you have realized that whenever you're thinking about yourself, you're always miserable. You really are. It's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> but as it's, soon as you release that, you just, oh, my God, I'm focusing on my kids and other people. And so, I mean, as corny as this sounds, I am. What I'm thinking about this book is that I hope, I'm hoping and intending that it serves a really good people, really good purpose to a lot of people that I appreciate from just hearing people talk are going through some tough times right now. Yeah, it's so true. Um, as you know, I've had my grief as we all have, and these stories of near-death experiences and shared death experiences have certainly changed my life. I mean, I don't know where I would be without those. And it's not, you know, it's not just this. These are not just for my listeners. These are not just stories. I, I so encourage you to get this book and read the stories and listen to some of my other interviews with people because it's so, ah, it's just so emotional. It's so so real for me but anyway thank you thank you that and you're so right about serving others you just get out of your head right when you're helping yeah. Someone. oh yeah, yeah absolutely yeah and you know you realize the simple equation ego equals pain yeah it's whenever your ego it's always something painful right and you know i could say you know they can say well raymond moody said the other night that he's finished with ego and that sounds like an egotistical statement it which it would be if i had climbed up on the mountain with my bare hands and burned the incense and laid on that bed of nails and talked to the guru and you know that would be ego but the way I got rid of my ego was, as Paul knows, I just pretty near killed myself with it. But, you know, once the thing about an ego trip is once you got out of one of them, you see the dreamlike quality of it, right? Like the night, it seemed so real. And yet it was. And But then you're just like, one is enough. Yeah. Like, you know, it's funny. It's funny you say that because I don't think Dr. Grayson would mind me saying this on air. But he also, when I talked to him about how this has changed, changed his life, he said, I'm not nearly as self-absorbed and egotistical. And I kind of laughed because I said, well, you, should, you certainly don't seem that way to me. And he said, well, you, you should have met me 50 years ago. Yeah. And it was just, you know, just really interesting. Um in your book, um, Reason 3 is the Transforming Light. And right. I, I heard you in another interview and you said that we know the transformation of near-death experiences is just astonishing. I, it's just yeah. ineffable to even explain that. But the, the SDE, you don't see that quite as much where someone actually changes their entire life. Yeah. So what is this yeah. Reason 3 Um what what was that about the transforming light? I don't think we know yet uh, uh, enough about shared death experiences to to know if people are transformed by them. I, I yeah. would think, I would think it would be a yes. very similar to a near death experience. Yeah, we don't know yet though. There's not uh, any research on it. Right. But but the transforming light is related to uh, uh, near death experiences when they see the light. You know, they, frequently they see dead relatives, they go up a tunnel, they see a, a light, they define it as being God or Jesus or Muhammad or, gee, I don't know what that was, but it was amazing. And it changes people. We did a, did a study in uh, Seattle where we looked at uh, a couple thousand people who had had near-death experiences uh, at different times in their life. And then we looked at them decades later to see how they had changed using different uh, psychological materials, you know, questionnaires and things like that. And they had changed in a lot of different ways. They, they had a higher zest for living, mm -hmm. which was defined as, as uh, type A without the anger. <laughs> uh, uh, they had 
they actually have a higher intelligence or seem to, I think. Raymond might have comments on that. Uh, they have, they're of course, less afraid of death. They have a greater appreciation of learning. A lot of that is because when when many people die, one of the things they uh, uh, mention is going to a celestial library, mm-hmm. or having or having the sense of having of having information downloaded into them, uh, and what's you know some of that sticks with them and some of it doesn't, which is frustrating for many people, but it tends to it tends to make them smarter it tends to make them want to be smarter mm. and then on a, on the woo-woo side is uh people who have near-death experiences have roughly four times as many uh confirmable psychic experiences as people who haven't had a near-death experience which to me means they're in touch with something that can read the future and some of that sticks as well so okay. that's we we consider that a shared death experience because as observers we can see that a person who's had an NDE has changed mm-hmm. and they're sharing that with us on on a daily basis. Have you seen thank you for that. Um have you heard m- many stories um about people in the room I interviewed Deborah Diamond who's a, a death doula right. and she actually sees can see deceased loved ones while in the room did you did you hear very many stories about that where the bystander actually sees deceased loved ones come to come in that's a constant flow of those stories yeah yeah, are there yeah it happened to my sister during my father's death i mean during my mother's death yes i wanted you to tell us about that about my father died 18 months ago but my 18 months before but my sister felt you know saw him there or felt him there at the death of my mother so yeah that and i hear that all the time from people and sometimes it kind of leaks down into the one night this very wonderful nurse on the oh during when i was on my OBGYN service and the nurse everybody else just kind of hated because she was so gruff but I thought she was so cool. You know, I mean, just, oh, my God, became my friend. Oh, my God, she was great. And one night, she just came on and says, oh, Raymond, you know, Miss whatever room, whatever seven is going to die tomorrow. What? Why? Because she said, I just looked in the room there, and there was a apparition sitting. Or she, I forgot the word she used, but some relative of hers that they're sitting beside her bed and you know she saw that's what she saw and that's just that is you know you ask around among good nurses that yeah you know it's something that happens and what can you say it's you know it's hard to put into the into the framework of reality that we're supposed to be living in but it happens yeah, you, you do hear that a lot. Yeah, yesterday I was talking to a, a woman uh, at a Starbucks. Her father had just died, but she was she's Mormon, and she was talking about the culture of Mormonism anyway. And she said that that culturally we're more likely to be with the people who are dying until the bitter end. You know, and oftentimes people die alone in a hospital, or they, but but Mormons don't. They tend to stick with people right till the end. And she was then talking about all of her aunts that uh, after her father died, uh, they all got together and they started telling stories about being with someone when they died and seeing supernatural things, many of which were seeing dead relatives come back over. And they referred me to a book called The Book of Mormon Discourses. And it's full of stories like this. It's a night, I think it's a 19th century book, or early 20th, but it's full of stories like this. And, and you realize that that a lot of us miss the opportunity by not being at a, at a person's bedside. And, wow. Yeah. Well, we'll put that book in the show notes for sure. You know, Paul, I heard you say once that you believe all people are most 
have experienced a miracle. And I kind of want to know what, if you have anything to, to say about that. I think in a, a, a lot of ways, we don't recognize it. We, yeah. or we just don't acknowledge it, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, I've experienced it many times in my life. And you'll hear people say, well, you know, my, my father died and, and I saw my grandfather with him, but they don't think much of it. They don't think of it as a miracle. Right. They just don't think about it. But I think once people are aware of near-death experiences and shared death experiences, they'll start to say, be able to categorize it. Being able to categorize something is very important uh, because it's too hard to explain it otherwise. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, so I think most people in their lives have had some kind of a miracle. Mm -hmm. uh, I know I certainly have, and I know Raymond has, and mm -hmm. I'm sure you have. I have, yeah. That's what's so incredible about this book, just bringing out these stories so people can open up, open up and share. Um, I know that some people have asked you and I, you, whomever can answer, but that if they can prepare for a positive life review and what has been your, what has been your answer to that? I would say I sort of halfway do. Yeah. I, mean, I, I feel like I do. Yeah. I think uh, it would take a highly obsessional person who wouldn't be very happy to try to think of that every moment of their life. Right. You know, speak of type A, right? Yeah. It would take that kind of person. But I think you can kind of gradually ease yourself into it over the years. And uh, What do you mean? That, well, you know, I think God handled, I just, you know, people talk about God punishing them. I think this is, all right, I some years back, many years back, back, I treated a certain person very badly for some years. Okay, because I thought I was so I'd been so affronted. <clears throat> All right, now flash forward some years, and I find myself in the exact same situation, except now I am the the, the receiver of it. See. Mm -hmm. except that it's now multiplied by a factor of 10 because that person is far better than I was, see. But not as a punishment, it's not a matter of punishment, it's like to get your attention. Right, right. <laughs> and all the way through this, I kept saying, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. See, that's nothing to do with punishment. How how are you going to learn what you did unless you see it from the other person's perspective? See, yeah. well, and then and that's done hyper, you know, in a in a you know in a hyper form in your your life review, <clears throat> and and you know it's it's hard to make the logical inference. I I mean I think yeah to me there's an afterlife. Okay, I give up. And, and it's also very difficult to make the logical inference that there's life after death with certainty. But I think that we can all make a, an, a startling in, inference from the shared death experiences from what we know already. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a, a startling inference about life, not about life after death, but about life. Yeah. And that is from what we know, we can say with certainty that at least for some of us, life is a two-phase process. We lead life forward as the protagonist or the actor. Then we die and time stands still. And there's a 180 degree turnaround and you re-witness everything you have ever done from the perspective of other people empathically, right? Now, that is a phenomenal fact, but it is a fact, isn't it? At least for some of us. And that is something to think about. 
And even when people go through it in the presence of this light of complete compassion and love, they still come back. <clears throat> yeah, I see. And they do a good job of it, in my experience, knowing people over the decades. But they all say in one way or another, too, that as George Ritchie told me one time, he said, you know, Raymond, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. And what he was saying, because he was very kind, he wouldn't say it this way, but I can translate that into, let's face it, it's very difficult to get through the average day without wanting to choke at one, at least one person, right? That's the reality. But people who come back from these things where they see this panorama ram of love, they're still in this human situation. So it becomes a kind of quest and i must say the ones i've known for you, they did well i've done well it's i mean a, you know evan too i mean i've known evan i guess for 14 years whatever now and he's you know he's a good he's just such a great example of that yeah. <clears throat> like this developmental process that set off him. yeah so so true <laughs> so we need to wrap it up but <clears throat> how do you think this knowledge well, I have two questions. First of all, do you think that at some point in the near future or not, that this will just be a known fact that there is life after death, that science, because we're so science oriented, that science will prove it enough, which I believe they already have a lot because of both of your work and others, but it will it, it will be like on 60 Minutes. You know, it's like well, the UFO I have thing. I opinion about that. So with Paul's permission, I would like to talk about that. Yeah, I'd love to hear this one. Okay. Yeah, it's... Um, say, say again the precise formulation so I can really get to the question. Do you think in the future... This will integrate it into. And that it will be declared and it will be well known, just like the Earth versus the Earth. Yes, that there is life after death. Positively. And let me say that skeptics have been greatly misconstrued by, by the false people who tell are not skeptics at all don't believe these people oh i think i'm a skeptic about near-death experiences i think it's just the chemistry in the brain that that is not skepticism that is it's it's human it's not these people don't know a skeptic is a person who works hard to avoid coming to a conclusion because he finds that it expands your mind. And also because since you're not rushing to get to the conclusion, you see side pathways that everybody else has missed. Right. And right. one of the great skeptics was Hume, David Hume, who influenced Einstein, for example. And, 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 and so Hume said something like he said, you know, it's, I think about, you know, he, he questioned this. You know, he said, what about the impressions that seem to arise from the senses? He said, we, this is utterly beyond the rational process to know whether they come from the, the objects or from the creative power of our mind or from the author of our being. And, you know, I mean, that's profound skepticism, right? Mm-hmm. And then he went on to say, but, you know, I go along about my, my life like everybody else. And he says, I go to dinner parties, and he probably went to too many of those, given his girth. <laughs> but, you know, he was social, and he got along, he did his job. Right. And so that's where I think, from my genuine skeptical approach, see, of trying to fight away this conclusion and avoid it, which I still do. I haven't drawn a conclusion. I've just given up. I can't think my way yes. out of it. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> what this is getting to is that it is becoming common sense. Mm-hmm. I've seen this change in 19th and, and since 19, since the 50s. I mean, my, in 50 years, I've been doing it to where it was. So it was suddenly everywhere. Number one, I didn't. 
I made no heroic thing by finding this out. It, what had happened was this was always known. The Greeks knew about it. Yeah. The reason I came in when I did was that by then, because of the CPR, this what had always been an, a, an understood human experience since antiquity, but was very rare, suddenly became very common. See, and I every every um, civic club I went to to lecture people. I mean, it was everywhere. And I realized that and I wrote and I knew full well when it was published, you would get that All right now. But this was 75. Now in 2023, it's like this is something that's happened to somebody that everybody knows. It's no longer something extraordinary. It's part of common sense. And that everybody knows something who's been over to the other side. And I, my life experience has been the older I get, the greater percentage of people my age, when I talk to them, have had some sort of experience during their life of apparently crossing over to some other zone of reality. So it's, it, it gradually becomes a matter of common sense. Right. That, Interesting. That, that makes sense. What do you think, Paul? I think it's a well-known phenomenon by probably 99% of the world. And uh, uh, as a result, I, I think they'll accept it. But then the, the next step in our culture is to be able to recreate it and recreate it at will. And I don't know what effect that would have on uh, the general public if they could recreate a near-death experience at will. But I would think it would be a pretty good. Uh, it would be a pretty good uh, effect on on the public in general. Wow. I mean, if you look at the transformation study. Yeah, uh, you know, people become better people as a result of this, and we can't have enough of that. They have a they have a volunteer table set up for some somewhere, but nobody showed up. <laughs> yeah. So if this is, or when I will say, not if when this is well known by everyone most of the people i know in my circle that says something they've never heard of a near-death experience until they meet me but um not because i had one it's just because i love talking about this sort of thing um how do you think it will change change humanity if they can be recreated no 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 if if finally everybody accepts well almost everyone accepts they know of the phenomena but it is accepted i want to leave in here too and say what i think is this that i'm pretty sure i know what the, the change would be and i don't think it would be nirvana you know it wouldn't be that everybody would be oh it's okay and it's like oh, yeah no that's that's you know not just look at the people who come back say yeah i mean it's still hard to get through this situation yes however one thing i'm absolutely sure of is that once the that that the acceptance of life after death is a reality would entail and involve the transformation of the logical mind as we have it now mm -hmm. and the simple reason is when you think about logically going back to hume hume said by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. What an understatement, right? But he went on to say, some new species of logic is required for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And it's, he was saying that it was impossible, but it's not impossible. I say that is solved, okay? But, but that the... Dif the difficulty of this is that what holds us all to it is the narrative side. Yeah. And hence your book, The Nonsense, about nonsense. That's right. And yeah. so it's, you know, the conceptual side is something people are not ready for yet, mm -hmm. except very few people. Yeah, but so I'm saying the conceptual side is soft. If you're not interested in concepts, don't worry about it. But if what you're interested in is just, is there an afterlife and you're not interested in changing your logical mind, I can say from my experience, apparently so, I don't know what else to think. 
Right, right. Were you going to say something, Paul? I was going to say something. It it's it could lead to a lot of really good things. It could lead to a change in in attitudes, a change in interaction with other people. It could also lead to some bad things. It could lead yeah. to a, a large number of suicides. Yes, yes. You know, uh, and and I wonder if that would be considered bad if we knew that there was a, an afterlife. If everyone was convinced of an afterlife. Right. It's interesting, though, from the near-death experiencers that I've interviewed that have had worked with people who had mm -hmm. tried to commit suicide or those who did and then came back, they've said, not not that this is really has any influence over what you just said, but they have no desire to, to ever do that again, which That's I find true. really fascinating. Yeah, it's very odd. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, like, it's like watching out, it's like walking out of the in the middle of the movie was one guy told me. He <laughs> said, if it had gone through to completion, he said he wouldn't have known what would have happened. Right. Yeah. And people say it would be like they would stuck, they would be stuck in it. Not, and not anything horrific, it's just that it's a glitch. Yeah. You know, right. you have to have some sort of something that patches that event. Yeah. But it depends on the movie. <laughs> It depends. I've walked out of many movies. I've walked out of two Guys, <laughs> we need to wrap it up, but are, is there anything um, that you'd like to shout to the world? I mean, this is just, your book is just phenomenal with the phenomena. <laughs> I want to shout to the people who are listening. Thank you so much for listening in. I mean, you know, I mean, this is stuff I've been interested in all my life since I was 18. Here I am, 79. And I mean, I can't even tell you how, you know, just nice. I mean, I'm just so appreciative that people would listen in to talking about, you know, this a subject that's really, to me, it's just inherently fascinating. Yeah. 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 I'm with Raymond on that. I, I think... Uh, reading about these experiences, if nothing else, leaves us with the notion that around us everywhere is, is grace and wonder. Mm -hmm. And and it's when you look at things like near-death experiences, it's an opportunity to kind of bathe in those. Beautiful, beautiful. So if people want to find both of you, where would, where would they do that? Okay. Yeah, lifeafterlife.com is mm -hmm. me. Okay. And Paul is Paul Perry Productions. Right. PaulPerryProductions.com. And then there's a way to connect through the book because in the back we have a, a, a spot where they can, uh, people can contact us as well. Great. Great. And I think that's at uh, proofoflifeafterlife.com. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, that will all we be in the show all be in the show notes. And I it was an honor to be with you two gentlemen today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. You're Great doing to meet you. So much for the world. Great to meet you. I mean, I can't think of anything more important than, than what we've been talking about today. So so thank okay. you and have a great evening and and hopefully these allergies will be able to you'll be able to <laughs> be gotcha, Raymond. Be winter. Okay, thanks so much, guys. Take care. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you.